the earliest days of the video game industry were, to put it lightly, a wild west of new technology. We all know Atari, and I'm sure plenty of folks know about Coleco, but among the competitors was a company known as APF, and their machines, the MP1000 and later the Imagination Machine, helped define that first generation. And we have people like engineer Ed Smith to thank for that. Ed grew up like any other black kid in New York City's Brownsville, a tough community that exists as a testament to the power of systemic discrimination, crime, and a lack of opportunity. Like many engineers before him, Ed eventually fell in love with the satisfaction and pride of taking machines apart and putting them back together, and it's that passion and hard work that drove him to a career at companies like APF, the Netware Creators Novell, and even Apple. But it wasn't really until recent years that Ed even felt comfortable sharing his experiences and wisdom thanks to a self-imposed belief that no one would ever believe a guy like him was ever responsible for helping create such a cool thing. It took until 2016 when Ed's story was featured in Fast Company for him to realize that his story had value. And so, Ed Smith wrote his memoir, appropriately titled Imagine That, the story of Ed Smith, one of the first African Americans to work in the design of video games and personal computers. And folks, I know I hype up a lot of episodes, hey, it's my job, but this truly was one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had the privilege of having. Not only does Smith provide a really engaging look at those early years of the video game wars, he provides a massively compelling look at how the African-American community he grew up in shaped him, the way he lives his life, and the way he had to champion his own intelligence and drive throughout his career. The video game and tech industries, of course, still struggle to diversify themselves, but as with all history, it behooves us to learn it so we can imagine a better future. I hope you learned something meaningful from the conversation. Go and read the book. It's like 10 or 12 bucks on Amazon. And I will see you on the other side. Here is Ed Smith. Welcome to another episode of the 1099. I am your host, Joseph Noob, and I hope you all are staying safe and sound. And it uh, looks like the air is clearing up out here in California, so I am glad for that. And I'm glad that you are all sticking here with us. This week's episode is going to be, a, I think, a very fascinating one. I have Ed Smith, author of Imagine That, uh, the story of Ed Smith, one of the first African Americans to work in the design of video games and personal computers. Ed, all the way from Florida these days. How you doing, Ed? I'm doing great, Joseph. How are you? I am great, and thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Uh, I, I really, I will admit, I let the book kind of sit there on my phone for a couple days, a little anxious to like dig in because I'm like, oh, okay, it's a, it's a, I, I want to read the whole thing, you know, before I do this interview. But then once I started reading it, uh, it was a super easy read, uh, very, very fascinating in so many different aspects about the the world of technology the world of early game design and uh, also just your lived experiences as a black man and 
I, uh, I would love to know, first off, um, what made you want to write this book after all these years? Because you, about midway through the book, you tell the story of feeling so mortally embarrassed that like a store worker didn't believe you helped make the imagination machine this uh competitor to the atari and coleco and that that experience that embarrassing experience impacted a lot about what you told people so what was the the thing that made you want to write it after all these years well you know it's interesting because if it was not for a series of events that that uh, happened i probably would have not written the book but luckily these events did occur. And one of the events that really kicked it off was when uh, a gentleman by the name of Benj Edwards contacted me uh, about six years ago. And he looked me up because he was, is, I'm sorry, a video game uh, editor and mm. aficionado, uh, has a lot of video games in his possession. Uh, so he found out that there was at least one african-american who designed a video game and that was jerry lawson uh, and then as he was going through his research he came across an article that was written in black enterprise magazine in 1982 and that article included uh myself as well as jerry lawson so that's when he found out that i was also uh a video game designer and he did the research to look me up as I said, about six years ago. Uh, and that's when he went through a series of questions uh, through an interview process and published my story uh, in Vintage Video Gaming. Um, and based on that story being published, of course, I got a lot of inquiries, a lot of questions, additional interviews. Mm -hmm. And then the question came up, this story is so good, Ed, why don't you write a book about it? Mm -hmm. And I gave it some thought about two years ago while I was still working. Uh, and I figured, you know, one of the things that I realized at the time when these questions came up is, uh, first of all, yes, I did do the work. Uh, and yes, I did hold it back for the reasons I mentioned in the book. But then I realized I've got to get this story out. And it's not just because I want people to know about me but I want people to know that there was a person like me who did this type of thing as an African-American so they can be inspired to do the same things in their own lives. Yeah. And I, I, it, it is a fascinating thing. Like I've, I've, I'm 20, I'm almost 28 and I've only really been working in the games industry uh, slash media for about six years. Uh, but anytime someone uh, comes to me and says like, Hey, I really enjoyed uh, that piece of work you did, or like that thing you did, like kind of influenced me in a way to do this. Like that is a really special thing. And, and I can only imagine yes. uh, the, the level of um, uh, gravity that gets when it's, it's reflective of a multi-decade career. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you know, since the book has been written and published, uh, I've gotten a lot of um, praise from folks who are you know, just trying to get into this business, you know, folks who are still in high school and they read about my story and they think, you know, I, at one point I didn't think this was something I wanted to do, but after reading that story, because of their own challenges that they're going through, they realize that this is something that they could probably do. Yeah. 
Yeah, the the industry, tech and gaming and otherwise, still obviously struggles a bit with uh, re recruiting and supporting uh, people of color uh, on, on various different levels. And one of the most fascinating aspects of the book, I, I was genuinely surprised to see how much of the book uh, was really a reflection on uh, growing up in uh, Brownsville, this uh, New York City uh, division that was just the way you describe it, rife with crime and mm -hmm. uh, systemic uh, discrimination. And so you say, like, you know, th this is ideally something that will encourage people who do who could not have envisioned themselves working in tech or games to to do it and that really was what it felt like for you as a kid uh what what did it mean to be a nerdy black kid interested in engineering and computers back in those like 60s and 70s new york city it's obviously like a more accepted career field these days but back then yeah. that was really going against the grain of what a lot of your peers uh fell into and even what your father uh, uh expected you to do yeah so that's that's the this is so amazing and i wish i could give you a a good reason as to why i did what i did but frankly i really don't even know myself but i can tell you what i do know uh, and that is that at a very young age, I was asked to do certain things around uh, fixing uh, appliances uh, and TVs and radios at home because I just happened to be, as you mentioned, that nerdy kid, even though no one ever used the term nerd at the time. Mm -hmm. But I was a kid who was inquisitive. I would take things apart, see how they work, put them back together, that type of thing. And my parents knew that about me. My father didn't think I was doing the right thing. My mother loved what I was doing. She would tell her friends, you know, Ed just fixed this, Ed can do that. And then I would get little things to do with them. And then all of a sudden, the thought of me being able to do something more than what folks in my neighborhood were doing or what my father wanted me to do, which was drive a truck, uh, I realized that I could take this limited knowledge that I had and grow that knowledge if I took the right steps as a young person. So at 13 years old, I made the decision with some advice from others to attend a magnet high school to study technical electronics when that was the last thing that anyone in my neighborhood would ever even think about doing. Yeah, and uh, it seems like a part of that that strat that strategy or like success you had was because even at that early age you uh, you built kind of a plan for yourself. You said like, well, this is what I want. How do I get there? Right. Uh, in, in a world where, as you describe, you know, men uh, became one of three things: a criminal, a laborer, or a priest who kind mm -hmm. of hid themselves away from the the rougher parts of the community. Uh, you saw some of that um uh vicious cycle you learned later afterwards that like you you had a a very rough uh relationship with your father uh and but and eventually you uh, uh began to understand and sympathize with a bit of what he had lived through uh a generation before you as a black man uh but what did it mean to have like some hope of escaping uh, that really vicious cycle and, and being so young and trying to enact a plan like that. Yeah. Let me just, um, um, 
preface this by talking a little bit about my father because I think that's an interesting point to uh, what I became. When you when you think about a person who grew up in uh, in the South in Mississippi um, during the 30s and 40s, when he had to endure, I mean, just some of the most injustice things that you could ever imagine. My father mm-hmm. witnessed. Uh, his friends being hanged. He was brutally beaten at one time. He was always threatened. So the one thing he wanted to do was to get out of Mississippi. And the only way you could do that at the time, at least many people did at the time, was to join the army. And that's what my father did. And then when he got out of the army, he was not going back to Mississippi and he ended up in New York. Unfortunately, the army life uh, was not the best life for a person like my father because what you learn in the army more than anything else is how to drink and smoke. And my mm-hmm. father did a lot of that. And, uh, but he was also a person who was uh, raised in such a bad environment uh, and had endured those vicious beatings and other humanities, inhumanities at his time, that he took all of that back with him when he started to raise his kids. And he treated us in many respects as the way he was treated as he was growing up. Uh, And that's just the only thing he knew at the time. Mm. Um, So we had to endure that as a, you know, a set of young uh, children growing up under my father's, if you want to call it guidance, I guess that's what it was. But we really didn't have that much guidance from my father. It was really, if you did something wrong, we're going to whoop your butt. That was the guidance, mm-hmm. right? So you have that. And then in the environment that I grew up in um, was also a downward type of uh, thing that I had to deal with. Um, so what I did is at that young age is I realized that the only thing I can do to change where I'm at today is to make sure that I have the knowledge that I need so that I am not one of those people who ends up like my father. And that's what, that was my whole uh, thing about getting educated and getting out of that environment that I was living in, because it wasn't just my father. It was probably every male that was in my neighborhood was pretty much the same way. So it was the environment that I had to escape. And the only way you can escape that, those environments is to have a better job. Um, I know of people who even today still live in that same environment that I grew up with. So it's something that you become uh, unfortunately accustomed to uh, because you truly believe that there is no better way out. And many people in that environment is in that position. That's the way they think. I did not want to be one of those folks. Yeah. And it, it seems like a lot of, um, the, the, the mental strategy and just the, the mental, um, uh, fortitude that you had to hold was, uh, uh, similar to what you saw with a lot of, uh, athletes, at least the yeah. successful ones who didn't, uh, end up falling back into, uh, negative, circumstances uh people like your friend uh world be free who played for the 76ers yes. uh, a successful athlete by any measure 
uh, you, despite being uh, uh, the, a, a nerdy kid who, you know, you, you seem to play plenty of sports, but obviously uh, left the, the athletes to uh, pursue those few opportunities, but the mentality of athletes really appealed to you and has always stuck with you as well, right? Absolutely. And, and, you know, if you, if you think of, and it was, it was a wonderful experience having a friend who uh, was a professional athlete. In fact, it was friends who were professional athletes. Uh, One of my other friends at the time was Bernard King, who played for the Knicks, but he was not as close to me as World Be Free was. Uh, we did a lot of things together between the two of us and the, my other brothers. Uh, so when you see this person who, after he became a Philadelphia 76er, you know, I was uh, always around him. My brother was living like a couple of miles away from him at the time in New Jersey across the bridge from Philadelphia. So we would always get together and talk and hang out and, you know, have a great time together. And he would tell me about the things that he had to go through to make sure that he keeps his profession, being on time, working out, uh, a schedule that required him to do specific things at specific times, things he never really had to deal with when he was growing up, he now had to deal with as a professional athlete. The travel that's involved, the hotel stays, all of the things that anyone in a business profession also had to do. So when I'm hearing World Free tell me the story of what he's doing as far as his life is concerned in a professional sports world, it was easy for me to adapt that same mentality to a professional business world. You have to have that same discipline. Yeah, that and that discipline is is very uh, evident throughout the book of just how you um, uh, reflect on the the level of discipline that it took for you to uh, uh, get your first few jobs and keep that into a a rolling success, as it were. Um, and you uh, you mentioned in the book that basically like the smartest decision you ever made uh around the age of like I don't know, 16 or something maybe maybe a little younger uh going to westinghouse this high school uh in the new york area where you were able to learn about uh engineering and technology and and other aspects of that uh tell me a little bit about that and like how um some of the you also seemed like you had a really positive mentorship experience there as well that uh impacted you. Yes, absolutely. So that that experience started at uh 13 years old, Joseph, is when I first attended oh, okay. Westinghouse. And uh that was the best decision that I did make in my in my life because it really was the linchpin for my career. And Westinghouse was a school, you had to take a test to get in, just like you did at Brooklyn Tech, which was another one of those big tech schools in New York. And I was lucky enough to be able to uh, get in and get an education um, that I probably would not have been able to get had I not taken that initiative on my own. I was fortunate to have a, a very good teacher at the time for my at least my first uh, two and a half years at Westinghouse, and by, na- by the name of Mr. Russian. Uh, yet, unfortunately, Mr. Russian passed away just prior to my senior year. Hmm. So I went from the A student, you know, I have to keep in mind, Joseph, that you're still talking about a young kid who's still trying to figure himself out hmm. and lucky enough to have someone who believed in him 
and trusted him. And uh, you feed off of that type of thing, of course. So when he passed away, my my attitude changed completely. Um, the the teacher that came in after Mr. Russian, uh, we didn't have the same rapport. Um, I didn't feel like he understood where I was coming from. I don't think he really cared as Mr. Russian did. So I went from an A student quickly to a B student. And I knew at the time that I had really just blown a very big opportunity, especially when Mr. Russian, before he passed away, said, if you keep this up, you're going to be the student, uh, you know, the top student in the class, and there are scholarships out there for you if that happens. So I went from that A student to a B student with no scholarships. It was a very depressing time in my latter time at Westinghouse, but I did get through it. I completed my studies and I promised myself that I would not let that deterrent change the path that I had to take. So although I didn't get a scholarship, I still went to college uh, and I still went out to seek the best opportunities that I could find based on that education at Westinghouse. And by the way, even at Westinghouse, in the latter part of your time there in your senior year, especially, you're actually learning college grade classes. Mm. So it was that type of an environment that I was in that really propelled me to be able to get employment even while I was going to college. And by the way, raising a family at the same time. Yeah, which uh, boy, I I can't even fathom uh, uh, balancing all that. I, I I've become a bit of a surrogate uncle for uh, our neighbors, uh, and <laughs> I, I I get exhausted just watching the one and a half year old uh, to say nothing of the four year old boy. Uh, so kudos to you for uh, making all that work, and uh, yeah. So your your first job was uh, kind of like a simple wiring technician at a company called Futuronics. Uh, making uh, schematics and such for uh, this like surveillance system. And then you had a second job at Marbleites uh, before you uh, got the big job at APF, which of course led to the Imagination Machine and MP1000. Uh, but tell me a little bit about, uh, it, it seemed like your experience with Futuronics and then Marbleite was, uh, you were really surprised at how multiracial uh those teams were uh especially for those days where you were working in uh, uh settings with people of countless uh, uh racial identities yeah you know it's interesting because you know starting at futuronics um and i i i went there and in fact i took a train and a bus to get to work every day and it mm-hmm. um it was an environment where it was multiracial um we were, I was actually hired to uh, initially just do wire wrapping for harnesses for Jeeps for the Army. And, um, you know, one of the things that I guess I, I, I took away from my studies at Westinghouse was my ability to learn something and then take that knowledge and apply it very quickly. So when I was tasked to do these wiring harnesses when others were doing one i was doing three i mean that's just the way it was Mm -hmm. and it wasn't as though i was doing them with errors i was doing them flawlessly and people take notice of that type of thing which is something i didn't realize at the time 
So once I started doing these harnesses efficiently, they took me into the back room, another room, another area, where it was an engineering room that I had not even known was there. And that's when they put a uh, schematic in front of me and asked if I could wire this surveillance system, a prototype. And I took a look at the schematic, and it was nothing new to me. I've seen schematics in high school all of my life, and I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And I took the soldering iron and all of the different parts, and I did the work. And sure enough, I produced exactly what they were looking to see happen. And once I was able to do that, you know, the feeling that you have as far as uh, completion of that type of a project was just it, it can't be explained. It's euphoric. You do the work, you turn something on, and you see it come up, and you're going, I did that. You know, it's almost like uh, building Frankenstein's monster. It was that type of a feeling, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I took that knowledge, and I said, okay, this, is a, this was not a permanent position anyway. I knew that. I think it lasted maybe a year. Uh, and I was let go. So I was uh, out looking for another position, but I had this little Futuronics background in my pocket, and I was able to find this position at APF. And when I got to the front door to meet with the, uh, the manager there, one of the first things I realized about the work that people wanted me to do in these types of environments is it wasn't like you had to sit down and take a written test or any other type of test, except they say, take this and build it or take this and see if you can fix it. And if you can fix it or build it, you got the job. And that's the way it was at APF. In that case, it was fix this traffic control signal unit, which was a box with potentiometers on it and everything. And you know, I was able to figure out where the problems were and I fixed it in record time. Didn't take me long. And sure enough, I got the job. Now, again, when I got the job at APF, I was 19 years old. Yeah. Right. So I'm thinking this is pretty good because at least I have a job. At least I can take care of my family. The most important thing for me and has always been is take care of your family. So that was the primary purpose for me in life at the time was to do that. But now once I had the job, I'm thinking, where else can I take this? Now, at that time, for the first two years or so, it was primarily doing the work, again, in that environment where it was multiracial. In in fact, Joseph, I can tell you that the best thing I learned in APF, besides learning microprocessor technology, was learning how to interact with folks of different races and realizing back then that at the end of the day, we are all the same. Mm -hmm. No one really cared about their race except for the fact that we could see each other's face. But when it came to doing the work, when it came to interacting uh, during off hours, we all did the same things together without anyone ever bringing up race. And I always wondered why it was at that time that we could do something like that when we have such a polarized world today. But that's yet for another story. <laughs> I wonder if it's, <laughs> it's funny, you, you know, you mentioned 
the the Frankenstein's monster kind of aspect of of uh, engineering something together and and seeing it come to life in a way. And I think that that is a a universal enough fascination that may maybe that plays a role in uh, why for some weird reason uh, engineering teams seem to not uh, particularly care about race as long as you can get the job done. And that mm-hmm. that really that really did stick out to me that that was a like relatively consistent aspect of the job interview is just like do you know how to do this? I don't care if you are, uh, uh, whatever you are. Right. And, um, I, I actually, I ended up going to another neighbor's house, uh, just this past Saturday and their, um, uh, like 15, 16 year old daughter, uh, part of the robotics club at the high school and, Mm -hmm. uh, built one of those kind of like robot kits, you know, like it gives you instructions, but like, it's cool to see like the CPU and the guts of the robot and like it, it moves and it picks up things, da, 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 da. Right. Uh, and, and she's a, she's a little, uh, uh, Chinese girl. Um, so it is, it is fascinating to see how, uh, uh, bound boundary lists that a fascination with robots and engineering and, and technology can be, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, and then if you go back into, you know, the environments that I grew up in and you look at the levels of education that is being given to those children, I question whether or not they are ever introduced to those types of things you know, introducing them to things that says, let's, let's do this project. Let's have you build something instead of just teaching you the standard curriculum. Let's go outside of the box and see if you have an acumen in some other area mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. And that's unfortunate. And before we dive a little more heavily into APF history stuff, I would love to jumping off of that, uh, you mentioned that you have like a, a really significant love for tech magazines like Popular Mechanics, Popular Electronics, Omni Magazine. Uh, I myself really I, I owe a big chunk of like my inspiration to get into the games and tech industry uh, to Electronic Gaming Monthly. Mm. Uh, I, I found a copy of the magazine in the salon my mom would always take us to and mixed mixed amongst the the women's hair catalogs. Uh, was a picture of a zombie from Resident Evil, uh, just, you know, gore coming off of its face. And I'm like, whoa, what is yes, this? So yes. that that was like the, the the light bulb moment. What was the, the light bulb moment for you with like these publications growing up and figuring out those career goals? You know, I think the first um, tech magazine I read was Popular Mechanics. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking I was in the area of, I know I was still in high school, so it was around 16 years old, probably. And I don't recall where I got the magazine from, although I'm sure I got it from someone, probably was one of the teachers in the school. I've got to believe that's where it came from. Uh, But I started reading through this magazine, and um, it was so fascinating to me to see the articles about how things were being built how design work was being done. Um, And I just fell in love with that type of reading. And once I realized that there was more than just one type of magazine out there, so mechanical engineering was one, 
and then I saw the popular electronics magazine, I would go back to the to the um, book stands, right? So I, I, I read the first issue, so I wanted to read more. So I go to the book stand, and lo and behold, there's popular electronics, right? And then there's Omni magazine, and I really just started grabbing all of this stuff. It was just I was absorbing so much information um, that it was my way of life, of living as a person, as a young person in technology. And by the way, one of the other reasons I read those publications is to get the knowledge. You know, you don't get all of the knowledge you need to have just by working a singular job. You have to be able to get that knowledge from other areas, be it university knowledge or knowledge from these types of publications. And I was lucky enough to be able to read through uh, those publications and gain so much knowledge, so much insight uh, that it was able, I was able to utilize that insight when I did get the job uh, at APF. It's funny you mentioned that too. Like my my big one of my other big uh, uh, influences for getting into journalism and whatnot is uh, my father taking me to the, the public library, very like small rinky dink mm. library, but they had all the like regional and a couple of national newspapers. And like, of course, you know, as a kid, I started off with uh, just reading the the funny pages, you know, Garfield yep. books, yep. a plenty. Uh, but then just being like, oh, cool, I know what this story is about, like, or oh, wow, this story is about a thing I was involved with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, gave me that initial fascination. And it, it is it is funny to see uh, in in magazines like that. I think, you know, kids and young adults kind of begin to absorb the language of that field. Um, and that also inform. I think that that might, in fact, be how uh, so many kids end up becoming interested in engineering as a principle is like, you know, certain brains are attracted to the idea of like, I have a, I have a problem. There Mm -hmm. is like one solution to this. How do I get from A to B? Uh, and, and that seems to be the case. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right, Joseph. The, the, um, I think the things that you take away from reading those types of publications is I, for me, I think it's first and foremost, you, you really start to understand structure mm-hmm. and you understand that there is an outcome to everything, right? So the, the, the key thing that anyone should be able to accomplish is to understand that there is a starting point and an end point and you need the structure in the middle to be able to get you from that point to the end point and then uh, moving on to to APF uh, I, I would just love to hear so the the MP 1000 and then later on the imagination machine uh, were primarily like these and please correct me if I'm wrong obviously but uh, they were like primarily these competitors to uh, the Atari 2600 and the Coleco and uh, really part of the first wave of uh, PC and and game consoles that were filtering into living rooms around uh, the US and abroad. And uh, what was it what was it like to be in the office of a company like APF back in those days uh, when like who would become the ultimate, you know, game or tech company was still kind of up in the air. Like what kinds of conversations yeah. were you having with those coworkers and bosses trying to figure out what your company's like next steps would be? So, yeah, let me give you the, uh, the, the quick history on what we did at APF. 
course. Which was a little bit different than what you would think about when you look at the Ataris or the Colecos of the world in the gaming space. Uh, and first and foremost, what APF Electronics was as a company initially was they were one of the largest electronics importers of the time. So they would import the calculators, the adding machines, and other electronic devices uh, from overseas, mainly China and Taiwan, uh, where they were manufactured, and bring them to the U.S. and sell them at discounted prices. That was their primary business. Um, and since they had those relationships overseas for having things built, they actually started having their own products built with their own designs as far as the calculators and the atom machines, etc. cetera. Uh, and then they were also looking to expand their business model and decided that one of the things they would do because they could have things built so easily was to uh, purchase the processor chip that had the Pong game on it. And at that time, you could purchase a Pong chip pretty easily, which is what a lot of companies did. Mm. And you build your console around it with the knobs and you would sell that into the marketplace. So APF's first video game was called TV Fun, which was the Pong game that you would play in the pizza parlors at the time. Um, so they actually had some pretty good success with TV Fun. Based on that success, they started to have their own internal discussions as to how they can expand that business model. And by the way, one of the first clients that they sold to, which was their biggest client, even for the calculators and the atomy machines, et cetera, was Sears and Montgomery Ward. Now, you may not remember Montgomery Ward at all, Joseph, but no. at one time, <laughs> I'll give you the quick history on that. You probably know Sears, but Montgomery Ward, before there was ever an Amazon, there was Montgomery Ward. They were a national catalog chain. And in that catalog that was hundreds of pages of thick, you could flip through it and purchase anything you wanted at any time. Montgomery Ward was the company that sold products to farmers and to other people across the U.S. at the time. So they were a catalog company. Sears was their retail outlet. And APF had a great relationship with Sears and also was able to put their products in the Montgomery Wards catalog. Mm. So since they had a client base, they wanted to expand their TV fun game. And I'm sure they had conversations with Montgomery Ward during this time as well. It's like, what do you want? What do you see? And that's when the color cartridge-based video gaming industry was just being introduced. Uh, Joseph, it was not Atari that started this industry. It was actually a company, uh, it was Fairchild, who was yeah. a designer of the microprocessor, and that was the processor that I studied around. But Fairchild was the company that had the first video game, cartridge-based video game, color video game, designed by another African-American who's, who's no longer with us, Jerry Lawson. Mm -hmm. uh, so based on the Fairchild video game, Atari developed their video game 
utilizing that same cartridge technology. Back then, Joseph, nothing was patented. Everybody just took designs and just copied them at will. And no one, there was no lawsuits or anything out there for this stuff. So APF introduced their 2600. And we took a look at that. This is before I joined, did I say APF? Atari introduced their 2600. We took a look at what Atari did prior to my joining APF. They had already made the decision that they were going to design a video game, a color cartridge-based video game. So now they needed people who could do the work. And that's when I was actually able to get the job at APF because, frankly, even though Marbleite was a great company to work for, it was a company that was situated in a seedy section of Brooklyn in a uh, uh, building that was uh, a manufacturing plant. Um, and the only place that I was able to go to to have lunch was a, a, a small little uh, deli bodega. across the street. Yeah. yeah, bodega deli across the street. And I just wanted a different life professionally and also something that would expand what I had already learned, especially around the microprocessor space. So I went to an employment agency. They found me this job at APF. I did the interview. Again, they said, build this thing. At that time, it was an RF adapter, and I built it quickly enough. It was not a big deal. I think they also asked me to do something on the schematic, and I did that. And I got the job. And when they interviewed me for the job, they asked me questions about my knowledge in the microprocessor space. Mm -hmm. And I made it clear to them at the time that my knowledge in microprocessors, based on what I learned from Fairchild at APF, I'm sorry, at Marbleite, was around bus technology. Because if you think of what a, a traffic control signal would do with a processor, it is all about signaling off and on. And that processor just had to be able to uh, hit the bus, turn on a signal, give it a delay, turn it off, maybe another signal for walk, don't walk, et cetera, et cetera. But it was all about managing the bus. And that's what I learned when I was with Marbleite around the Fairchild processor. That's what I explained to the folks at APF. And that's exactly what they were looking for, it turns out, because they did need someone who could actually develop the cartridge slot for this new video game, in addition to other things. Uh, so we did the design work. I, first of all, I got the job, thank you. Mm -hmm. And we did <laughs> started working on the design work of this new video game. Uh, we did reverse engineer the 2600. It was just introduced when we started to do our design work. And I think Coleco was a little bit behind Atari. Um, so we were just at the forefront of developing this video game unit. And we spent a lot of time, a lot of hours uh, going through how this video game would be designed, uh, the architecture around the hardware, um, around the operating system, around the games themselves, what games would be written and how and by who. Um, all of these things were being discussed in real time. And as it turns out, we didn't have a lot of time either. So the environment, when you ask that question as to, you know, what was the conversation like? What was the interaction like? We were always, it seems like anyway, heads down in the design work itself, 
just laying out the designs, having a lot of heated discussions about the design work, uh, coming up with what we thought was the right design model, interacting with the folks overseas as well, because at mm -hmm. one point, all of the stuff that we did would go to them and they would actually build it out there. So there was all of this interaction going on as well as interaction with the folks in the front office, right? You know, the, the, the president of the company, the, the, the head of sales, uh, they also needed to have their own input as to what we were doing because at the end of the day, this is a revenue thing. And that was the other problem that we had in engineering. We could care less about revenue. Right. Right. All we wanted to do was build this thing. Even if it didn't make a penny, as long as we could build it and get it to work, we were happy. But we understood what their what their goals were. And we tried to align what we did uh, as much as we could with their goals. Uh, so we spent the hours. We did the work. We came up with the design. Um, it was a great design. And we got that out to our folks overseas. And they came back with the first console unit. And uh, when I saw it for the first time, I said, you know, this this is it. Um, you know, of course, we saw mock-ups before that. But to see the actual unit come back was really a, again, it was one of those Frankenstein moments. It was, aha, you plug it in, you turn it on. You know, it already had a game built into it, Rocket Patrol, it was called, so we could mm -hmm. actually see it work. And then the real work started, which was to write the games. Luckily, that was not my job. <laughs> <laughs> But one of the jobs I did have was to play the games. Play the yeah, play tester. Point, I, yeah, that, game that tester. Was, that was really fascinating to me that like, of course, you have this engineering job. Uh, yes. But, all, but like true to the game industry, uh, your <laughs> your job description becomes a little different than uh, or a little expanded uh, to fit the needs of the day. And yeah, you uh, I, I was fascinating. I was fascinated to see um, a, a woman, I think a, another black woman uh, named Linda. Uh, uh, no, she was not black. She was she was a uh, she was Caucasian, but yes, that Caucasian. was Linda. Uh, Linda, yeah, uh, a woman writing these games, um, and then yeah, they would be passed on to you. Uh, uh, it's 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 so typical of the the industry itself to find yourself kind of like temporarily hopping into one or the other job. What was what was that experience like? That was uh, that was that was interesting. So. You know, you, you're still doing you're doing the work on the uh, on the video game. You get the video game work done. But by the way, there was still a lot of work to do. You know, even after the video game hit the market, you know, there was uh, returns coming in. We had to figure out why there were problems with the units, and then the games were being written. And as you mentioned, I had to test these games. So Linda would write a game. She would finish the game, give me the ROM. I would plug it into my prototype, and I would sit there and start playing the game. And at one point, I'm sitting there going, oh, this is fun. You know, this is brick out. You know, it's nice. And, you know, I got through this level. <coughs> cool. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, that's it, right? You know, and no one ever said, well, you know, Ed, you've got to get to the highest level just to make sure there's no bugs. <laughs> yeah. And when they say that, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Okay, I'm not just playing the game. This is a job. These days, people get paid six-figure salaries to play games just to do the same exact thing. Right. But I had to play those games and get to the highest level. That That's for every cartridge we came out with. I had to play that game, get to the highest level to make sure there were no bugs. And by the way, there was some bugs as you went through the different levels. Uh, and because of that experience, playing those games on the MP1000 at that time, these days, I don't want to play a lot of games. You know, I just got mm -hmm. gamed out with that mm -hmm. whole experience. 
Um, but yes, that was the that was the other role that I had to play, and there were multiple roles. Uh, I was primarily responsible for all of the schematic uh, diagrams that were drawn up for the both the MP1000 and the Imagination Machine. I was responsible for going to our Long Island City uh, facility to assist them in debugging problems with the games and eventually the Imagination Machine. And I was responsible for going out to visit clients with the salespeople once the Imagination Machine was designed because they they knew nothing about what a personal computer was. So it was a multi-rolled environment for sure. Yeah, and I, I think it's it was very interesting to see even back in those days um, how integral the relationship between either different sections of a company or uh, third party uh, companies and and a central company how important those relationships were to making a a product or a, a piece of engineering successful and. That was kind of a bit of uh, wisdom you learned from Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak was like none of none of these successes come without uh, any like third parties. Mm. Uh, and and that that seems like something you were really passionate about. Can you tell me a, a bit about like how that lesson kind of manifested itself and uh, maybe how you've like taken it further on in your career? Yes. Yes, Joseph. So first of all, uh, hat, kudos to Steve. To Steve Wozniak. I had a great conversation with him for however long it took. It could have been five minutes, maybe 10. But based on that conversation and what I had seen in the industry, um, and by the way, when I met Woz, it was at a Boston Computer Society event, and the Apple II had just been released, not the Apple IIe, which was the more advanced unit, but the Apple II was out. And when I first saw the Apple II, because again, we were looking at designing our own console unit to the MP1000 to turn that into a personal computer. When I saw that Apple II, the first thing that hit me was how the expansion slots were available uh, for third-party companies to design cards that would increase the functionality of that computer. And when I met Jobs and I asked him, you know, what his thought process was around the expansion slots, he made it clear at that time that even though he came up with a nice design, by the way, he was not an inventor, just as Ford wasn't, but he came up with a nice design for a personal computer, he realized that if this computer is going to be successful, he has to be able to allow third parties to add functionality because it's very difficult for any one company to build everything themselves, especially during those early days. And that's the mentality that Waz had that I loved. And that actually did take me throughout my career as a thought process when I started working in strategic alliances. The same premise was true is that whether you're a hardware company or a software company, you cannot build everything yourself. You need partnerships. You need third parties that add value to what you're building. So that was the key thing that I took away from my interaction with Waz, and I appreciate the fact that he spent some time to speak with me about it. You know, it's, it's one of the stereotypes of uh, tech industry, game industry that uh, like, oh, these are people sitting in, in dark rooms, um, 
mostly alone like working on their projects until they're finished but like really the, the like six seven years of experience i i have had has been like completely the opposite of uh gaming and tech is uh a a wildly social uh field because like i i i've been going to the game developers conference here in the bay mm-hmm. uh, for the last six years and uh that was kind of the, the first one back in like 2014 or something was uh my wake up call to like, wow, there are countless like third party companies who, you know, specialize in the one thing and almost every company with a budget, you know, is making use of uh, those companies. And that's why those products are as refined or as uh, uh, just solid and, and don't don't show their seams is because they had, one team working on one aspect and that all came together in the end. Uh, uh, yes, co- correct. So being able to open up your architecture and allow third parties to build into that, you know, that's a key uh, point of engineering that I would advocate to anyone that's building anything. Don't think you can do it alone. And by the way, um, even though Waz did a great job with the Apple II and, the, and then the Apple IIe, after the Apple IIe was released, I'm going to just give you some quick Apple history here. Hmm. After the Apple IIe was released, Waz stepped back. He no longer got involved in the engineering work at Apple. So Jobs had another engineering team come in after Waz, after Jobs had been to the Xerox Park research facility and saw the work that they were doing around graphical user interfaces, took that back to his engineering team and said, I want you to build a personal computer based on this kind of thing. That was the downfall of Apple. Because first of all, Waz left. He was no longer involved. Mm -hmm. The design work that that engineering team did was a completely closed architecture with no ability for third-party add-ons at all. And that was the first Apple Macintosh. So that little square nine-inch box that people fell in love with because of that 1984 commercial at the time uh, was cute. But at the same time, just around that same time, IBM came out with their personal computer. And what did IBM do? They took the same thing that Apple did with the Apple II as far as open architecture and expansion slots, and they made that IBM PC around that architecture. Hmm. So now again, third-party companies were able to put uh, graphic adapters in the IBM PC, uh, modem cards in the IBM PC, additional memory, et cetera, et cetera. Third-party companies were having a field day selling cards for the IBM PC. Guess which one sold, especially to business? It wasn't the Mac. It was the IBM PC. Yeah. Uh, so that was really Apple's downfall for a number of years when it came to, in fact, it, it's, it's even true today. Apple never caught up in the PC business because of the closed architecture of the Apple Macintosh computer back in those days. And it's fascinating to see 
that line uh uh like extend all the way to modern day where of course it's it's still effectively kind of a a closed ecosystem uh that uh android platforms and pc platforms are infinitely more uh customizable and now that that that's even uh i I don't know how much you kept up with it but uh epic games the creators of fortnite are you know trying to sue uh, oh yeah and i've seen it (laughs) i'm I'm very i have no idea which way that wind will blow but i'm very curious to see which direction it does yeah yeah and that that just says you know apple is doing doing exactly what they were doing back then right they want to control that environment right and, uh, you know, I, it's funny you talk a bit about uh, reverse engineering and how that was kind of a, an important aspect of the work you did at APF, because um, I, I think that that is a underestimated uh, aspect of just lear- learning how to build and deconstruct things is like, for example, I, I right now I've taken up voxel art, which is I don't know if you're familiar with stuff like Minecraft, but, you know, making art out of cubes yep. uh, and and making that into a 3D model. And there's wonderful software for that. And I, I'm on my fifth project and I'm, I'm getting better. I'm, I, it is a cool thing that I have really glommed onto. Uh, and I, I am building a model of a Game Boy. Uh, and tr- <laughs> true to, you know, most people who embark on a new creative endeavor, I am looking at what other people did uh, with the exact same um, project. And like, I'm trying to not copy them, obviously, but I'm like, okay, I am stuck here. I have no idea how to make this into that. Let me just real quick look. I'm reverse engineering, uh, you know, what someone else did, either like in a different program or with a different set of restrictions and uh, making that my own. And I... (laughs) Just yesterday, I had an anxiety attack. Someone told me like, oh, to get the proper rendering effect, do this weird trick. And I did the weird trick and it like cut my model in half with no way to uh, bring it back. Wow. So like, so I have half a Game Boy now. (laughs) Yeah. And I I felt that pang of uh, anguish over like, oh, no, the project I was so passionate about the like, you know, making everything look and and act the way it needs to be is is gone and i have to rebuild the whole dang thing but at least yeah. now i know i've reverse engineered and it'll be a much faster process because i know exactly what i want to do yeah uh, you know you yeah. bring up a good point because one of the things that engineering uh is about is failure you know yeah. and setbacks you know Absolutely. everything doesn't work <laughs> the first time you try it or the second or the third. So, yeah, that's, you know, there's there's always going to be those little challenges or big challenges when it comes to uh, designing and developing things that uh, that you want to get out there in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like despite what I'm sure, you know, the failures, uh, APF eventually folded, but uh, you, you describe the experience as being remarkably empowering for yourself um uh you know as a as a younger black man uh finding a place in a company like that that didn't uh uh disvalue you because of your skin uh and and that was there were some i would love to hear a little bit about though um uh 
you have this quote, I, I, I pulled it here in our document, uh, quote, for me, being a black man in technology means I still have to deal with the prejudices, the denials and the profiling that any of my African-American peers would also endure across a large. Uh, oh, so that's the that's the quote. And then you illustrate that by saying, you know, you would get off the train back into uh, uh, your neck of the woods there in New York and it was a different world. It, it, it wasn't the tight knit, uh, clean, safe world where APF was located. It was your rough neighborhood. And, you know, you, you were mugged once. And, uh, uh, it, it, tell me, like, you describe it as a, like, uh, get out of jail for the day work release program. <laughs> what did that kind of, what did that kind of make you think, you know, of your coworkers and of the, the work you were doing and the life you were trying and the, and the, the goals that you wanted to, uh, of course, achieve, uh, fully one day. Yeah. So, you know, um, first of all, when I did get the job at APF, um, I was happy to get the job. Uh, I, I, I was happy because there was a group of folks who was willing to, frankly, uh, take a risk with an African-American doing design work on their products. So I was appreciative of that. And I did want to get out of that environment that I was at at Marbleite that I talked about, that factory environment. So I was happy to be able to get the job at APF. But then once I got the job, those revelations just started pouring out to me. And it, it just became this, this mental challenge that I had when I'm in this section of Brooklyn, New York, that was not the most desirable place to live. You know, crime, you know, I got mugged more than once, but, you know, it's, and, and you could see the crime in front of you as, you, as you're um, walking in the streets. So I have to get on the train and go into this nice office complex in Midtown Manhattan to go to work. I'm in an environment that's pristine. I mean, everything you want is right there. My boss would take me out to have some of the best lunches or dinners at some of the best restaurants in New York City at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was in heaven when I was there. But eventually I had to leave that environment and go back to my living environment, which was totally the opposite from my work environment. And that mental struggle that I had going on, especially when I would sit around during these lunches or dinners with this group of folks, you know, we had the, I mean, we would have lunch with the president of the company, the VPs, everybody, we would have these sessions and they would be talking about remodeling some section of their house or shoveling the snow from their driveway so they can pull their car out of their garage. And I'm sitting there, you know, as a young man, and I'm hearing these discussions. And all I could think about was, first of all, Ed, don't say a word. And then secondly, this is not the world you live in. Mm -hmm. And then thirdly, how do I get to the world they're in, right? And that was the thought that I had through this entire experience uh, at APF. I knew that I had a good job and I appreciated the job, but I also knew the world I was living in was not the same world they were living in. And I wanted to be in that world. Not to say that I don't want it to be, I wanted to be a Caucasian, but I certainly wanted to live 
that type of a life, to have a home, not just an apartment in a seedy part of Brooklyn, but I wanted a home with a garage, with a driveway, with a park that my kids can play in. I wanted the exact same thing as anyone else would want. But unfortunately, that's not easy to get as an African-American at that time. Yeah. And it seemed like there was also uh, the, the, the still still to this day, very typical, like, oh, you speak so well for a black person uh, uh-huh. kind of comments that like, thank you, I guess. Yeah. You never hear that unless you're you're you know, you know what I mean, right? I mean, it's for me to speak and for someone else to say, you know, you speak well and you get so shocked when they say it, you don't even know what to say back to them. It's like, well, how do you expect me to speak? Do you want me to give you a draw? I mean, what do you want? (laughs) You know, but yes, that's exactly the way it was. And uh, it, it seems like that uh, your your although generally it seems like your experience with APF like you you describe it as very uh, empowering and as the years went on um, you you even took on sort of a you would go to conventions and conferences and kind of show off you you got a little bit of that uh, like marketing role you 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 had like you know a somewhat formal education in marketing and. Uh, uh, and and that seemed to uh, be a really formative experience for you going to uh, conventions and whatnot and uh, seeing that. And that that really, that was like, like I mentioned earlier, Game Developers Conference is like my absolute favorite show. It was really formative to how I, rather than going to a commercial show like E3, where it's just hype, 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 mm-hmm. uh, I, I loved learning about you know, uh, issues and topics that the industry was tackling. And what was that kind of a similar thing for you of like, did those shows and, and being a face that people, you know, interacted with when they, uh, saw the imagination machine, what did, what did that mean for you? Uh, yeah. So at the consumer electronics shows, which was that, uh, environment that, um, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to be at, was that still uh, in Vegas in those days? Well, it was actually, it was uh, in Vegas in the winter and it was oh, okay. in Chicago in the summer. Oh, cool. So yeah, they flipped it around. Um, but yeah, I would go to the CES shows and, you know, again, the first thing you do, you know, the first time I went to that show, I remember it was just aw- awestruck because of the size, the enormity of this thing. And the number of people that were in these large convention centers is something that, again, I had never seen before. And then once I started to mull around, I immediately realized that there's not too many of me walking around here. And, um, you know, I took it in, uh, but I didn't let it deter me. I just stayed on my path. I stayed there with my head up. I knew what I had to do. I knew what I knew. And I was able to communicate that to anyone who would, you know, want to listen. So I was able to uh, present the imagination machine to anyone who would come in and into our booth and want to get a demonstration. Uh, I think I did a really good job at that. At least that's what I was told because I was uh, at a couple of more since that, that first one. And uh, for every time I went to one of those conventions, either during the time I was with APF or over the last 40 years of my career at 
after going to, I've probably been to a hundred conventions or more by this time. Mm-hmm. The number of African Americans at these conferences grew slightly, probably from one to ten, if you know what I mean, per every thousand people that I see. It's mm-hmm. so small. It's so uh, discouraging not to see a lot of presence from folks of my color. And I need to retract that because I say my color, but my color would also include folks from India who were there more so than folks who were African-American, right? So you had a lot of folks from India who are always at these conferences. And as you know, the Indian IT business is huge today. I worked for an Indian company at one time. Uh, They get it. Their government gets it. They push their people into this field. And every time I see that, I continue to advocate to the folks here in the U.S. that you're pulling a major portion of your community away from technology, which is the African-American community, instead of pushing them forward. Yeah, and I, uh, it's it's just so funny that you raise all that point because um, what I, I've told this story on the podcast before, but uh, I'll never forget um, GDC twenty nineteen or maybe eighteen. Uh, they had a large like uh, uh, wall in the middle of the show floor, like as you kind of came down the the escalators at the Moscone Center, mm-hmm. and it had a picture of the globe on it. Uh, with all the countries and continents and whatnot, and uh, people handing out like uh, a red sticker and say, you know, put put your sticker where you're from. So of course, lots of people from the West Coast and uh, all over North America, so a lot of Europe, mm-hmm. and uh, the sign above it said, um, "The game industry across the world." And later on that day, uh, Rami Ismail, a uh, wonderful indie game developer. Uh, and a uh, like six foot tall Muslim man, uh, he criticized that during his talk, his panel, uh, saying like, that's not the game industry across the world. That's the industry <laughs> that had the privilege and the access to come to San Francisco in March uh, in, you know, the, the middle of the, the Trump Bring presidency. Yes. <laughs> and yes. and and all those levels of privilege. So I was like, yeah, that's that what a what a poorly thought out uh bit of uh wallpaper diversity uh and i th- i think one of the most fascinating um kind of lessons uh we'll talk a little bit more about lessons in the last few minutes we got here but you say uh you you, you want companies to um employ different diversity strategies for different races and not just have one all-encompassing thing because that does not work uh, for every kind of community. I wonder if you can tell me a little more about that. I can. And I think this gets to um, the way, if you look at the um, uh, the way African-American communities are structured, I guess, is the way I would, I would, uh, I would say it. And they're structured in a way to fail um, because you have, as I mentioned, these communities where the poverty level is high, mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the desire to do anything uh, above and beyond what you see in the streets is low. 
you have a environment where there are uh, single parents raising kids and not doing a very good job at it. And you have kids getting educations, if they even get an education, that is marginal. So you have that environment that is being overlooked. However, if you were able to invest in the inner cities the way you should be able to, you can actually develop a whole new workforce in technology over the next few years. And if you think about it, if you go into any inner city and you walk through the neighborhoods or drive through the neighborhoods, you probably wouldn't want to walk, what you would see is not a single structure for advanced learning mm -hmm. or for any work position in technology or for that matter, almost anything else. So the only way these folks in the inner cities can get what they want is to leave their neighborhoods, travel some miles to get to where they need to get to and get that education and then go back home or go back to work in whatever menial job they have. It's very depressing. What should happen in my opinion is investments should be made within these inner cities where you have tech centers in the hood yeah. right there, right? Why are you forcing them to, to, to get to some place where in many cases they can't even afford to take the bus to get to? Put it in the neighborhoods so that not just the people who can get that education can get it, but the kids growing up, the kids in school who are not ready for work yet, but they can see it's there, right? They have a goal to reach because they know they can get that tech education. Uh, today, I guarantee you, there are very few children at a young age who have any aspiration to be in a world of technology because they simply don't see it. That is very true. And it, it sounds almost uh, cliche to say it, but of course, the, the, the need for that kind of education and, and support uh, begins at a very young age uh, before very young you age. say, you know, uh, otherwise you end up with, as you say, a, a delta of knowledge between uh, races, and that is just perpetuates the cycle, of course. It does. And uh, by the way, I actually did a, a, a blog on my website, and the blog is called, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting title, it's called Coding is the New Rap. And the whole idea behind mm -hmm. that is to get young folks to understand that if they can learn rap music, the lyrics, and recite them so quickly and easily, they can learn how to code. Music is math. M yes. Music is math. That's Correct. it's, 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 it's tickling that same part of the brain. Yep. Um, uh, you know, so in the about 15 minutes we have here, I would love to just touch on, uh, one last time, really, uh, the, the imagination machine and, um, so the, the, the high point and then the, uh, closure of APF, what kinds mm. of lessons, you know, seeing it on the front lines like that and being uh, on the front lines of like the very earliest years of uh, the games industry, um, what kind of lessons did you take away from your time at APF working on the imagination machine and then seeing how uh, APF um, eventually had its closure uh, just due to uh, extenuating like funding circumstances and uh, a bit of bad yep. luck? 
Yeah, you know, it's interesting because at APF, while we were doing the work on the first, the MP1000, that was somewhat of a success. And then the imagination machine, um, once the imagination machine was introduced, it started to sell relatively well, again, at Sears. And, you know, I started to realize that, you know, the, the industry itself, the personal computer industry, more so than the gaming industry, in my mind, was the end game. And in some respects, that's true, although the video game industry also has its own footprint now. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things I took away from my time uh, at APF was the dichotomy between video gaming and personal computing. And understanding that, you had to, make, you had to take your position in one space or the other. Unfortunately for me, the gaming industry took a downturn after the uh, demise of the Atari, as well as the MP1000 and other cartridge-based video games. The so it was about a two or three-year lull before uh, Sega came out and started the industry up all over again. Now, frankly, I can't wait two or three years to get employment, mm -hmm. so I had to get that employment in the areas that I could, which was in the personal computing space. Um, but the whole lessons part of it is to understand that there is this difference between video gaming and personal computing. Uh, so you have to pick your, your space. Uh, and once you do, the industry that you do choose at the end of the game, once you get to the guts of this thing, is one and the same. And that's the lesson that I learned. I don't care if I'm talking about a video game, a personal computer, a smartphone, a tablet, or any other device, which there are millions of now, that all have the same underlying architecture, which is a microprocessor-based environment. So if you get to the roots of it, that's really the lesson that I've taken from that early time throughout my career. And even if I'm just working for a company that's doing coding, you're coding to a processor, you're coding to something, or you're building something around a processor. It's all based on the heart of any system. And that's the key thing to remember for anyone is you start there and you build around it. I, I think that that's, it's so true for uh, the gaming industry as well is that um, it, it's funny uh, in the last few years, like I, I ended up doing uh, a couple of stories about um, uh, student game developers, you know, coming out of uh, University of Southern California and New York University and, and all the big ones that have really uh, elaborate, fancy programs. And uh, uh, they, they meant some of those students would mention like, yeah, it's really interesting to learn from people who themselves grew up from a very early age with video games, as opposed to the first generation of game designers and, and tech designers and developers who had to, you know, work from scratch and figure out like, well, what, what do, what do the com, what's the common language we use look like? And mm. to this day, of course, there are still so many uh, parallels between what uh, those earliest developers and designers are doing and what, uh, principles and uh, design fundamentals uh, modern day developers, be it tech or gaming, are taking yep. on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as we wrap up here, I, I think the it's funny that you uh, uh, 
close the book with a couple of like lessons that you feel like you learned along the way. And cause I think that these are really, really applicable um, to uh, almost anyone working in tech or gaming or any creative field uh, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, so, something that I struggle with myself. Like I, I talk to a therapist every week uh, very often about uh, professional jealousy and, and career related <laughs> anxieties and whatnot. Yes. And you mentioned, you know, uh, you know, do not use negativity to motivate you, uh, which I think is a really important aspect of that because I, I have struggled with that in the past of like, oh, this positive thing happened to somebody, they got a job or like they got a promotion or they just published a cool thing. Uh, and like, I need to not let that motivate me because that will make my work uh, born of spite, right? Uh, yes. what, what, do you, what do you think about that? Well, you know, I think it's actually the, the whole thing about negativity is, is twofold because what you have is you have uh, folks who will say to you things like, I don't think you can do that, right? Or that's too hard right. for you. Right. That's one piece of negativity that you can say, I disagree and you go ahead and you do exactly what they say you cannot do. And then as you mentioned, Joseph, on the other side, you have the negativity where there is someone who has done something and accomplished something and you have a negative impact from that and it pushes you away from accomplishing what that person has done. So you have it on both sides, unfortunately. And the key thing is to not let either one of those sides impact what you need to do. So if there is a negative aspect of something that someone has done that you were not able to do, you cannot let that impede your progress from getting to what you have to do. It it seems indicative, too, of... Uh, just the, the, again, like the racial disparity uh, in education access is uh, so many young black men and women are told from an early age, like, like your father said, you know, get a chauffeur's license. Yeah. Um, uh, don't reach for those stars. Whereas I, as a comparatively uh, like middle-class white kid, uh, like, yeah, I had like some naysayers, but like never, certainly never like that oppressive. And uh, I, I had other people in my life who said like, yeah, go ahead, be whatever you want to be. All the, <laughs> all the, all the good stuff that like a kid needed to hear. And that is so deceptively, uh, fundamental to, uh, a young person's way of thinking as they begin to think about like, well, okay, I have the rest of my life ahead of me. What do I yes. want to do with it? Right. Yeah, exactly. The power of positive thinking. Exactly. Yeah. And and speaking of positive thinking, I think the the last bit I would love to talk to you about the the never quit a job over anger um, lesson Whoa. that uh, it seems like in the tech industry and game industry there are plenty of opportunities where um, people could could very legitimately uh, quit a job in anger because you know they were laid off or uh, a negative work environment. Mm-hmm. And I th- I thought it was really interesting to see you say like never quit that job in anger. And I think that that is a smart lesson because uh, that even more so than just the aspect of don't burn the bridge, it's also like the focus on the positive aspects of it, of uh, what you learned during your time at a job, right? Right, right. And, and that's, that's the first thing that's key is you are there to do a job, but more importantly, to advance your career. Exactly. So yeah. if, you, if you allow for these 
negative aspects of your job to uh, force you to think about quitting, then you're in the job for the wrong reasons. And what you should be thinking about is, although there is something that is making me feel uneasy, even though as long as it's not something that's illegal, you have to overcome those feelings, get the education you need, get the knowledge you need to advance your career, and not just walk away from a job, but find another job first, then walk away, right? But just never quit a job, be unemployed, and start looking for another job. That never works for me. In fact, I go back to the analogy of a professional athlete. A free Uh, agent. Yeah, free agency, right? An athlete will never say, I don't like this team, I'm walking out. They're not going to do that. They're going to finish out their contract, they're going to become a free agent, and then they're going to go look for another team to play for. You have to have that same mentality in a professional environment. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely uh, the, the the free agent aspect. Of course, so much of labor these days is gig economy or just freelance. Uh, freelance I, gig, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I have been a 1099 tax form guy. <laughs> the, the podcast is called the 1099. 1099, uh, yeah. And uh, it, it is, there are aspects of this freelance life that I know I think I will miss uh, when I end up getting a full-time job uh, somewhere in the industry is uh, the, the, that level of freedom, but also that level of like personal responsibility, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it can be easy for some folks to tread water at a company, of course, uh, but when you are fighting for every dollar and trying and have to be a little scrappy. Like they, I, I get up every morning thinking like, all right, what do I got to do? And that's the same kind of uh, uh, mentality that really carried your career. It seems. That's correct. Exactly. You have to get up every morning with a purpose and remember what that purpose is and let that purpose drive you every day. And, you know, we'll wrap up there. I think, uh, yeah, imagine that. The story of Ed Smith, one of the first African-Americans to work in the design of video games and personal computers. That is available on Amazon, uh, both paperback and Kindle. Uh, Is that available anywhere else, uh, Ed? Uh, It is only in the U.S. today, but there is a German version that's being written right now. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, you had a blog. Do you have a, a – I did not uh, see that earlier. Do you have a like personal site that you uh, maintain? I do. It's just called Imagine That Number 2, imaginethat2.com. All right. And wonderful. And I suppose, you know, you're probably enjoying uh, your your retirement days uh, these days, but is there anything on the future uh, horizons that you're excited uh, for? I am. And uh, although I did, uh, quote, retire, I'm more like like you right now, Joseph. I'm doing a lot of 1099 stuff. I do a lot of business consulting still. Uh, I do a lot of uh, these types of podcasts and blogs. Uh, I do a lot of speaking engagements via Zoom these days. So I am still pretty active. And once the uh, virus gets under control, I'm sure I'll be (laughs) back out there uh, doing the public speaking work as well, especially to high schools and universities, uh, mainly around the uh, folks who are African-American students, where I still want to get this message out. Well, Ed, I I sincerely hope that uh, we cross paths sometime in the future, be it at something like the Game Developers Conference or CES or something else. And 
I, I want to thank you for taking so much time out of your day uh, to talk about your career. This has been easily one of the most uh, fascinating discussions I've had on the show. And uh, obviously that is born from so much lived experience and, and wisdom. And uh, thank you for, for all of that. It's been my pleasure, Joseph. And I'm hopeful that we will have a chance to physically meet one day. And folks, you can find uh, The 1099 on social media at The 1099 Podcast. Uh, you can also find the podcast itself on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcast feed uh, into your ears. Please feel free to leave a review of the show, rate it. That helps us climb the charts. And let us know what you thought of the episode on social media. Feel free to tag me at Joseph Noop, J-O-S-E-P-H-K-N-O-O-P. And I hope you all stay safe, and we will see you next week.